and my name is Tamisa and welcome to episode 16 of hearing is believing a podcast where we discuss different stories and topics that center around our catholic faith so like always just want to remind everybody that we are not experts we are not theologians and we definitely do not speak on behalf of the catholic church we're just two sisters that really enjoy talking about angels and demons and saints and the such and wanted to share these stories with you so andrea unfortunately there was another national tragedy that happened recently yes our thoughts and prayers are going out to all of the victims and the families of the 10 people who unfortunately lost their lives in the boulder colorado shooting it's literally two weeks in a row where we have these horrible tragedies in in this country and unfortunately like I hear everyone saying, oh, I want to go back to normal. I want to go back to normal. Well, I don't want to go back to this kind of normal where we have a shooting, a mass shooting once a month or or more. It was horrible. Yeah. But yeah, our thoughts and prayers are going out to everyone who is affected by by this latest shooting. Yeah, by this literal massacre. So yeah, it's just, it's really awful. And hopefully, you know, our prayers are answered and there's better regulations there's more control, there's less crime, less of these type of events. and Better background checks. Yeah, better background checks. Hopefully that this all can stop and there can be some national change that will, you know, protect and save people's lives. So that's what's going on this week. I don't have any news really to share with everybody. Yeah, me neither. I feel like when, when these type of tragedies happen and I mean, it impacts the nation, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. everything else kind of just seems kind of trivial when you're realized like how much people's lives are destroyed by acts of violence. So I, I think we can forego our personal weekly updates for this week again. Um, And hopefully we can just hop into these stories that will, you know, provide some distraction, maybe be uplifting, you know, remind us that we need to root ourselves in our faith and pray for change and pray for those people who who unfortunately lost their lives. Yeah. I do want to point out to everybody that today when this episode comes out is Palm Sunday. You're right. Thanks for that reminder. And for, well, I guess not even a reminder. It's like it is Palm Sunday when this comes out. Wow, I feel like this, this Lent season flew by. I don't know about you, but I feel like it, I blinked and we're already in Palm Sunday and then it's going to be Easter. We're at the tail end of Lent, everybody. Um, yeah. So it's coming around. But yeah, I mean, I just want to bring that up uh, because my story for this week is inspired or at least it started really on Palm Sunday. So I'm talking about St. Clair of Assisi. What are you talking about, Tamisa? Well, I wanted to uh, share a spooky story for everybody today. Ooh. It's mm-hmm. it's going to be pretty short, so I wish I had so much more to share about this, but unfortunately, there's just not a lot of details. But we're going to be talking about a nun who, during a possession, wrote a letter that was essentially dictated by the devil, and it was written in code. And in 2017, that code was deciphered. So we'll talk about what was in that letter and the story behind it. Oh my goodness, that's so creepy. Okay, yeah, I'm excited mm-hmm. for that. Yeah. I believe I go first, though. Yeah, you go first. Okay. Um, St. Clair. She was born July 16th, 1194, in, if you can guess, Assisi, Italy. She was the eldest daughter of Favorino 
Schiffi, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Again, I don't speak Italian. He was the Count of Sasso Rosso, and his wife was Ortolana. Claire's father was the wealthy representative of an ancient Roman family, and her mother, Ortolana, was from the noble family of Fiumi, and she was a very devout woman who had already gone on pilgrimages to Rome, Santiago de Compostela, Spain, and the Holy Land. So her mother was a well-traveled woman. And what year was this again? Uh, St. Clair was born 1194. Wow. The fact that her mother was able to travel so... I don't know. I feel like back in those days, like traveling was not easy. No, and it took a long time. Mm -hmm. And I imagine Mm -hmm. travel... Well, one, like you said, wasn't easy, but that's also, like, physically taxing. Takes a lot of money. A lot of people are going to have to go. So, Mm -hmm. but, you know, her family was kind of well off, so they could probably afford it. Yeah, they definitely could afford it. If they were able to do that, then they managed one way or another. Yeah. So, as a young girl, Claire devoted herself to prayer. And at 18 years old, she heard St. Francis of Assisi preaching during a Lenten service at the Church of San Giorgio at Assisi, and she asked him to teach her how to live according to the gospel. Mm -hmm. On March 20th, 1212, on Palm Sunday, she left her father's home, she ran away basically, and went to the chapel of the Portsiuncula, I think is how you say it? Mm-hmm. to meet St. Francis, and there she cut her hair off, and she exchanged her rich gown for a plain robe and veil. I definitely can see how cutting off her hair would be like a big offering, I feel like, you know? Like, that's, she's offering me, like, I'm leaving everything behind, even my hair. Yeah. That's a powerful symbol of status and femininity, especially back in those days. Like, that was the norm was to have long hair, for women to have long hair. Yeah, your hair is a big part of your identity. Claire was then sent by St. Francis to join the convent of the Benedictine nuns of San Paolo near Bastia. Her father found her, because remember, she ran away from home. He found her and he tried to force her to return home. She clung to the altar of the church and threw aside her veil to show her cropped hair, to show that she had cut it all off. She refused all of his attempts to take her home, professing that she would have no husband other than Jesus Christ. Yeah, you tell him. That's a strong lady. Right? Mm -hmm. That will. Like, no. So a few days later, St. Francis sent Claire to Sant'Angelo in Ponzo, which is another monastery of Benedictine nuns, where Mm -hmm. she continued her religious formation. Claire was soon joined by her sister Katerina, who took the name Agnes and who also later became a saint, they stayed there with the Benedictine nuns until a small dwelling was built for them next to the church of San Damiano. And fun fact, the church of San Damiano is the place where St. Francis first heard the voice of God telling him to rebuild his church. I'm not going to go further into that. That's just a little fun fact because I'm going to save the rest of that story for when I cover St. Francis of Assisi later. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Anyway, so back to St. Clair. Other women joined her and Agnes. And then later on, even Claire's own mother joined there in San Damiano. I'm sure the dad was not pleased. (laughs) 
Like, all these women are leaving. What is this? Well, here's the thing. I don't think her mother would have left her father. I think more than likely the father would have passed away and then the mother came. Oh, yeah. That's way more reasonable. <laughs> that makes a little bit more sense, I think. Yeah. I think I think you're right. I think I was just projecting. <laughs> <laughs> um. So there at San Damiano, it became the center of Claire's new religious order, which was known in her lifetime as the Order of Poor Ladies of San Damiano of which she was the undisputed abbess from 1216 until her death in 1253 at the age of 59. Today, we know her order as the Order of St. Clair and also commonly known as Poor Clares. Clare dedicated the order to the strict teachings of St. Francis. They lived a simple life of extreme poverty, austerity, and seclusion from the world. The nuns lived entirely off of the alms given by the local people, and their life consisted of manual labor and prayer. The nuns would walk barefoot, and they slept on the ground, they ate no meat, and they observed almost complete silence. Additionally, if that's not hard enough, the order also forbade the ownership of property, even by the community. Mm-hmm. So you gave up everything. To become a poor Claire. Again, back in back in those days, that's definitely like a big ask of people. It was it was a very big ask, but people would do it willingly because they wholeheartedly believed in it. Yeah. One thing I, I didn't put in my notes, but I had read that a lot of bishops and like every successive pope that would come along would try to like impose these rules to change Claire's order, her religious order, to make them a little bit more in line with the Benedictine order, with the rule mm-hmm. of Be- St. Benedict. But St. Claire was adamant, like, no, we are going to follow the rule of St. Francis. Our order is going to be in line with his principles, with his teachings. Mm-hmm. But she stuck to her guns and everyone else was completely on board. I mean, we have to remember the story of, like, how her father tries to take her away and she will not let go of the altar, like... She is a tough lady, that's for sure. She meant business. Mm -hmm. So in many paintings, St. Clair is often shown holding up a monstrance. Another fun fact, monstrance is the tall decorative object that holds the consecrated Eucharist. And we see it a lot during Eucharistic adoration. So Tamisa, if you remember, sometimes you see a priest come out and he's holding this big, tall candle looking thing. And it's got a a round thing at the very top, like a round flat disc. Mm -hmm. And inside you have the Eucharist. That whole object is called the monstrance. Oh, that's crazy. I never knew the name of that thing. Mm -hmm. And then whenever you see a round, small container, like like almost like a bowl with a lid on top, that's called a pyx. And sometimes you'll see paintings of St. Clair with a pyx because that's holding the Eucharist, but almost all the pictures have a monstrance. Mm-hmm. So she's shown with this, with this object, this monstrance, because between September 1240 and June 1241, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II was at war with Pope Gregory IX for control mm-hmm. over Italy. The army of the emperor attacked the monastery of San Damiano and the town of Assisi. As the soldiers were coming to the gates of the convent, Claire ran out carrying the monstrance and knelt in prayer, warding off the the soldiers. 
Mm-hmm. So she saved the monastery. She saved the convent. Heck yeah. I'm telling you, this lady, she's she's a tough cookie. Like, she's not she's not giving in for anybody. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Yeah, she protected a nation, basically. Well, her nation, for sure. So one last story I want to talk about. What do you think St. Clair of Assisi is the patron saint of? Okay, I'm going to cheat because I do... I know a St. Clair, and I'm not sure if it's St. Clair of Assisi, but I want to say music? No. Am I making that up? I don't know, but no. She is the patron saint of television. What? Weird, right? Why, why does television even need a saint? <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, well, in 1958, Pope Pius XII declared mm-hmm. her the patron saint of television. This is because towards the end of her life, St. Clair was very sick. She suffered for years with, like, poor health and just kept getting worse. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of her life, St. Clair was too ill to attend the Christmas Midnight Mass being held at the Basilica St. Francis there in Assisi. So she's on one side of town, and the Basilica is on way on the other side of town, and she can't go. She's too ill. Supposedly, she was able to see and hear the Mass on the wall of her room you're kidding she got a big screen tv <laughs> oh my goodness she's way ahead of her time like how did that even wow that would be an experience <laughs> right so because of that story she is the patron saint of television wow i like that okay i'm glad i'm down and we celebrate her feast day on august 11th um, mm-hmm. every year because that is the day of her death and like I said that was in 1253 mm-hmm. when she was 59 years old and that is my story of St. Clair of Assisi wow thank you I like that I like that it's a strong powerful woman who didn't take no for an answer and I think that's always nice to hear especially with like these um, a lot of my research I see like female saints from you know back in the olden days they're usually praised for their their piety and how like quiet and just devoted to prayer they were. And while St. Clair definitely is very devoted, but she like also just like didn't take no for an answer and like didn't she doesn't like she, her story doesn't sound quiet to me. You know what I mean? And what's funny is her order like they were very quiet. Like they held themselves in almost complete silence. Like they didn't talk, they <laughs> always reflected, but she mm-hmm. had such faith in what she was doing and she does all all she really wanted to be honest was to live according to the gospel Mm -hmm. that was the biggest goal yeah i like that thank you so much for sharing that story that was a good one i'm glad you liked it all right so now that we had something uplifting i want something that's going to make me curl under the covers scared for my life well, I can't guarantee all of that, but I can definitely make sure that you feel some spooky chills that make you very uncomfortable. So the the hair on the back of my neck is going to stand up or what? Oh, yeah, definitely. You're going to have goosebumps all over. Okay. All right. Hit me with it. So this story starts with Sister Maria Crucifissa della Concessione. It's an Italian name. I'm trying my best. She was a 17th century nun in italy for the rest of the story just to make it simple we're gonna call her sister maria sound good sister maria 
Sister Maria. What is this? Sound of music? Oh, jeez. I didn't even catch that. <laughs> yes, we're going to pretend. <laughs> picture Sister Maria from the Sound of Music in the rest of the story. Yeah, she's not a sister, but it's Well, close. now she's a sister. Picture, yeah, picture, what? what is it? Julie Andrews? Yeah, Julie Andrews. Yeah, okay. So this is ju- all about Julie Andrews. She became a nun in Italy in the 17th century. Okay, so Sister Maria Crocifisa. We really don't know much about her, unfortunately. We know that she was born Isabella Tomasi, and we know that she joined a Benedictine convent at Palma di Montechiaro, which is a small town in Sicily, and she joined it at the age of 15. I thought that was really interesting. I know in your story, St. Clair, she joined a Benedictine convent first, right? Yeah, she first went with the Benedictine nuns at at a monastery, Yeah. yeah monastery so this is also she's in a benedictine convent so i thought that was kind of interesting i'm like wow this is this is really similar in in a way but Mm -hmm. not really (laughs) well i mean benedictine you know there's so many orders okay they're linked they're linked so sister maria she joined the convent she's at palma de monte monte chiaro and one day sister maria was at the altar and she woke up she had passed out And when Mm -hmm. she woke up, she saw there was a bunch of handwritten letters in this weird alphabet that she didn't recognize, and it was all over her room. She and the other sisters at the convent believe that those letters were written by Lucifer during bouts of possession. And according to her, they were written in a way to try to convince her, try to lure her to leave God to serve the devil. Do we not know how she became possessed and like like no. how it started? I literally all it's like you jump into a movie and just instantly starts with the worst thing possible. This this is that story. Like we we do not know why she was possessed. I don't even know the age she was when she was possessed. We know that she she joined this convent at the age of 15 and somewhere somehow she just started passing out. And having these letter letters being written while she was overcome by the devil during during bouts of possession. Oh, that's so creepy. Okay. It is. Yeah, it's really creepy. And the thing is, she wrote lots of letters. There's about like dozens of them that she allegedly wrote. And all of them are in, were in code. Nobody really knew what they meant. Of all of the dozens and dozens of letters that that were transcribed, only one has survived. That one letter was composed in 1676 and had about 14 lines. And I say about because there's like some spacing. It's either like 11 or 14 lines, depending on, I guess, how you judge it. And it's just a weird combination of alphabets and symbols. And it's from a bunch of different languages. So it's not just like, oh, this is Greek or, oh, this is... I don't know, Latin or Egyptian or whatever. It was a combination of all these different alphabets. And so for centuries, Mm -hmm. scholars and codebreakers were trying to figure out what this letter was saying, like what was hidden within it, and nobody could could decipher it. That is, until 341 years later, and for those who do not want to do math, that is just fancy talk for in 2017, Thank you. I was not going to do the math for that. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, "Mm." I wanted to sound really impressive for a moment. So I was like, it's 341 years. 
but like honestly it was just 2017. <laughs> so in 2017, researchers at the Ledham Science Center in Sicily, they were able to decode the letter. And they were able to do this by using an algorithm that they had found on the dark web and they had programmed it to use letters from ancient Greek, from Arabic, runic alphabets, uh, Latin, just a combination of all of these different ancient languages. Mm -hmm. And through that, this algorithm was able to decode parts of the letters. So we only have certain parts. There are other parts that I think they're, they're still trying to decode and still trying to figure out what it means. But it gives us an insight into mm -hmm. what was hidden in, in this, which is super, super frightening. You said they got what off of the dark web? An algorithm. Okay, so they got this algorithm. I mean, yeah. I don't know how much I would trust that. It seems a little sketchy. Computer science? I don't know. Something about it just feels off to me. I'm not questioning your story. No, it's just something. There. Well, I see where you're coming from because that was actually going to be the next thing I talk about. And it's interesting that you're being skeptical from that standpoint um, because the big elephant in the room is that there are a lot of people that are skeptical of this, but they're actually skeptical of the source. They don't believe that Sister Maria Crucifisa de la Concesione. Sister Maria. Okay. <laughs> yep. See, I told you we're going to call her Sister Maria. These researchers don't believe that Sister Maria was possessed when she wrote this. They think that, one, she was perhaps suffering from schizophrenia, and she was writing these letters during those episodes. Mm -hmm. And two, they believe that she was a skillful linguist and that she could have known all of these languages and used that knowledge to, you know, make up this scenario. So that is what they believe. I personally disagree. We don't have a lot of information on Sister Maria or her life no. or to know if she was actually educated in all these different languages. Exactly. That's, that is what I think. I, I mean, we don't, we don't have a way to know for sure if this happened or not. I am leaning on the side of belief that this is possible because I, I've looked at the letter and I've also posted it on our social media. So everybody, please check us out on Twitter and Facebook if you want to see a picture it looks so crazy and like it it looks really creepy to me but the like it's such a variety of symbols i don't think a person from the the 17th century could know runic that they could know you know arabic i feel like those are pretty very very niche that i'm not sure if a nun from a convent would perhaps be so skillful and so ingenious i guess to to make up this elaborate ruse i mean if i'm gonna give her credit for for learning any language it'd probably be latin or greek yeah i feel like that okay i could believe like yeah latin and greek i feel like that is more common to to know but i feel like the rest of it i think is pretty pretty specific also like i said they they used those languages they inputted those languages in that algorithm mm -hmm. to help decode it but there were still parts of the letters that they still haven't been able to decode. It seems rather complicated mm -hmm. that I'm leaning on the side that it's, I can believe that it was the devil making this happen. You know what I mean? Okay. We're, we're going to roll with that. That's what we're going to roll with for now. Mm -hmm. But like any person should always acknowledge the counter argument. Mm -hmm. 
So the counter argument is the researchers, they believe that this is just a bunch of different languages that Sister Maria already knew and that she composed this letter based on that knowledge and combined with perhaps schizophrenia, she invented this code. That is perhaps what could have happened. Or like you said, maybe the issue is with the, the algorithm, who knows? But what we do know is the messages that were able to be decoded. Like I said, it's only part of the letter. And I, I tried so, so hard to get more information about what some of the messages were. Um, but essentially, the letter is about the relationship between God, the devil, and mankind. So I have a couple pieces of that letter that I'm going to share with you now. You ready? Yeah. Okay. So what they were able to decode revealed that the letter was talking, was claiming that God was invented by man. It says that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are quote-unquote dead weight. It says, and this is the part that kind of gets me the most, it says, and I quote, God thinks he can free mortals. And it also says, this system works for no one. Perhaps now, Styx is certain. And Styx is referring to the river Styx, which is, according to um, Greek and Roman mythology, it's what divides Earth, like the land of the living, from the underworld. I also saw in one, one article that the letter also reads like it's trying to encourage God to abandon mankind and to leave them to, to the devil. But again, that was only one article that I saw that made that reference, so I just wanted to state that. But all of the other articles that I read acknowledge those other parts, that God and the Holy Spirit are just dead weight, that God cannot free mortals, and that the system, which I can only imagine is referring to, to heaven, it works for no one. Those are some of those messages. What do you think, Andrea? Well, the first part where God is created by man I've heard that before. I don't believe in it. That's just my personal take on that. I don't believe in that. But if Sister Maria wasn't possessed, she was probably just bringing up points, maybe a little like ahead of her time. I don't know. And that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is just dead weight. That's that's kind of like, that hurts. Yeah. Andrea, I'm sending you the picture right now of what the letter looks like. If you want to take a quick look at your phone. But... I mean, this is supposedly, from what Sister Maria was uh, saying to the other people in the convent and to her peers, is that during these episodes, the devil was trying to convince her to turn her back on God. So to me, like when I read these, I'm thinking like, this is the devil essentially like trash talking God to her and also trying to trash talk about God to the world using those letters to basically, I think it's a combination of like getting God to abandon us, but for us to also abandon God. That's the part that always creeps me out, especially when he says the system works for no one. It yeah. kind of just feels very like, like it's, it's, it's almost as if I can picture someone saying like, oh, that's cute. You think that any of this matters? Well, it doesn't. And I think that part kind of scares me. Like it kind of creeps me out. Like, I'm looking at this letter that you sent, right? So I'm looking at the picture of it. I can mm -hmm. for sure tell there's Greek letters in here. There's some that look kind of like, almost like made up, but there's some letters in here, some symbols that I've seen before. Like, I don't know what language they are, but I know that I've seen them. And I think there's some Hebrew in here too. 
Maybe, yeah. It's just, it's definitely a weird combination of a bunch of things. It's a super weird combination. Mm-hmm. It's kind of creepy to look at, but at the same time, it's like your eye keeps coming back to it. Yeah, It's exactly. so weird. But it's written, it's written just like a letter. Like, you have lines, mm-hmm. and then you have, like, towards the bottom right of the picture, like a, like a signing off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives me goosebumps, because I feel that the action of writing a letter, like, a letter is meant to be shared. It's meant to be passed on, like, passed along. And if it's the devil trying to tell us why, why we need to turn our backs or why we should turn our back on God, even just looking at that letter, I feel like, oh, gross, I'm, like, stepping into his trap of, like, looking at this and seeing this because that's step one of accepting yeah exactly mm-hmm. it's just oh it, it gets me <laughs> no that is it is kind of creepy just looking at it so if uh definitely yeah look at our social media go ahead take a look at it i will completely go with the belief that she was possessed and that the the devil wanted those letters to come out to us and i personally feel like if they've all been destroyed but this is the only one that's been preserved like what's so special about this letter exactly and also i mean going back to the experience that sister maria was having during the times that she that she was writing these letters you know she was there's reports that she would scream and faint at the altar that she was warning others at the convent that the devil was trying to get her to serve him and and not god and her peers believed her. Like they're at that time, they they weren't dismissing her. They didn't know. They saw these letters and they didn't know what the code meant either. So they actually displayed the letters and and the one that survived as well. They displayed that letter at the convent, hoping that somebody would eventually be able to decipher it. They wanted to know too, and they believed her. I mean, what reason would they have not to believe her? I mean, true, but at the same time, I feel like it's. Even back then, I, I feel like there's constantly, I mean, there's so many stories about saints where they're experiencing visions of, of God and they don't believe them or they're trying to, like, minimize the significance. But I feel like if the people that were there with her, for them to just believe and to believe to the extent that they are putting it out on display, trying to find some answers, I imagine that they must have seen her... They must have seen her faint. They must have seen her screaming at the altar. They must have probably seen other things that we just don't know that made them believe that, yes, this is a possession and this needs to, we need to figure out what this means. Or at least that's my take. No, and I completely agree. I I think that makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. Do we know what happened to Sister Maria? We don't. Again, when I was trying to find some more information, um, just to put all the cards on the table, there is another Sister Maria Crucifisa, but her last name is different. It's not De La Concesione, it's something else. And um, she was a 18th or 19th century nun who later also became a saint. So it's hard to find the information about our specific Sister Maria. So no, I don't know when she passed away, I don't know anything else aside that her original name was Isabella Toma- Tomasi, and that she was 15 when she joined this convent, and that the letter that we are looking at and that we're referring to was composed in 1676. That's it. No exorcism, no death, no. no. Okay. Not that I could find. Yeah. But with, with the information that we have from that letter and having at least that piece of evidence... You know, scholars are still trying to decode the rest of the letter, and so it's really hard to say, to be honest, 
if it's a hoax or if it's legitimate. And I did research as well, and I couldn't find anything about whether the church, like the Vatican, has acknowledged this or says it's true or made any statements on it. So we are kind of left up in the air, but they are still trying to decode the rest of the letter. All we have are those fragments to go off of. Well, that was an interesting story. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I know it kind of feels a bit fragmented. It feels a bit fragmented to me, but it's because it's still, you know, they're still trying to figure it out. But I just think it's fascinating to know that there was this experience of somebody receiving a letter or perhaps writing it themselves that had these type of messages in it. I think that's very, for me at least, it's just very scary. Hopefully we don't have to wait almost another 400 years to uh, yeah, no, hopefully. figure out the other portion of the, the letter for it to be decoded. Yeah, we just need to wait for another algorithm from the dark web. Yeah, sketchy. Well, I think that concludes another episode of this podcast yeah so thank you everybody for tuning in and listening to our stories we hope you enjoyed it like always please check out our social media you can find us on facebook and twitter at hiv podcast and if you have any stories that you'd like to share with us please feel free to email hearing us believing podcast at gmail.com and we'll talk to you guys next week bye, bye.